Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. to talk about this very serious issue. Um, I um, gave a lecture earlier today, um, but tonight my goal was not to lecture, and I think it's kind of fortuitous. I didn't know beforehand that the first uh, event would take place in a room with a podium and a bunch of seats in rows, and this event is around a table, uh, but it seems to have worked out nicely. What I did instead, um, I brought this handout, which has about four pages of text. And I thought that they're structured according to a certain order that I think it would uh, be beneficial to discuss them in. Um, And so it's not quite a lecture, but it is a sort of order of operations. Um, And I'll um, introduce the first one before we get to the first one by sort of saying what I have in mind when I'm thinking about this topic. So um, you saw that I wrote this book uh, that just came out last year, Martin Buber's Theopolitics. And while I was doing my research for that book, I was very struck by this idea that Buber had, which was thoroughly part of his Zionism, really, um, but which I think has relevance um, well beyond his own little world of thought. And that was that um, when God chose to make a covenant with the Jewish people, Um, God did that for a reason. The reason was not just that he liked the Jewish people and wanted them to worship him, um, but rather that God wanted um, the Jewish people to create a certain kind of society. And the goal was to operate through that society to eventually have an impact on all of humanity. Um, And the reason that God would need to engage in some sort of um, process like that is that God decided to create people uh, with free will. So if God had just wanted to create humans and give them the perfect society uh, automatically, God could have made people without free will. But instead they had free will and they could do whatever they wanted and therefore they did a whole bunch of evil and had to get wiped out with a flood, (laughs) right? Um, So... One way of reading the story of the Tanakh is that God actually tries initially to relate to all of humanity at once. And that doesn't really work. And then God tries again um, after the Adam and Eve through Noah part of the Bible. And when God tries again, God tries again with one family. And that one family then turns into one people. And then as soon as that one people is in existence, God says, okay, I want you to create this particular type of society. And the rest of the Bible is the story of the people attempting to do that. And they basically fail. And then they get a second chance at the very end of the Bible after the exile and then they return. 
And what Buber thought was that Zionism offered a chance for the Jews to essentially try for the third time uh, to do this mission that was really the whole purpose of being a Jew, um, as he thought of it. And so there's some line in his uh, book, Kingship of God, where he says that the Sinai Covenant is not just about a religion, it's not just about cult and custom, but it's also about Wirtschaft und Gesellschaft, economy and society, which is the name, as you may know, of a great, uh, massive magnum opus by the sociologist Max Weber, Economy and Society. And I, Buber was, I think, referring to that book intentionally. Um, but then, kind of weirdly, maybe, uh, he doesn't say very much about economy um, in the rest of his writings. Um, and I thought, well, someone else out there must do that, since Buber doesn't, does it, doesn't do it. And so I went kind of looking to see, well, who is out there in Jewish thought who is talking about um, economy in this way? Because that's the, the, the way I was interested in. Um, and so I went and I got this big book out of the library called The Oxford Handbook of Judaism and Economics, because I thought that's where I should start, <laughs> right? It makes sense. Um, and there are 33 chapters in that book, and very strangely, none of them dealt with the question of what kind of economy you should have. They were all about um, very specific questions, like what, um, what constitutes a transfer of ownership in halakha? What kinds of loans are permissible according to halakha? Um, you know, would credit default swaps, you know, that caused the financial crisis, would those have been permissible? Um, so part of that was due to the focus of the scholars included in the volume. They were mostly halakhically trained economists, and so they were interested in very specific issues like that. But I really wanted to see something about society as a whole. And when I was looking around on that, I found this very interesting um, piece by Yeshayahu Leibovitz, um, who was an Orthodox thinker who lived in Israel in the mid-century. Um, I think he uh, is well known for a lot of things, maybe besides this essay, but I thought that this was really interesting, and I just thought it lays out the problem in a really interesting way, the problem that I'm interested in. So I wonder if any of you guys might be um, interested in reading this first paragraph of the Leibovitz together? Out loud. The prophet describes the goal of those who seek the nearness of God in terms of social justice. But what is the sociological significance of this demand for social justice? Does it imply affirmation of a specific social order and the rejection of others? Again, we remember the prophet who defines religious good and God's demand of man as doing justice and loving mercy. However, doing justice and loving mercy have the same importance, the same value, and the same force in the case of relations between a master and his slave in a society based upon slavery, relations between the employer and his worker in a capitalistic society, and between comrades at work and rights in a social, socialistic system. Hence, this religious moral teaching offers no ground for preference of any specific socio-political program. Thank you. Let's stop there. Um, 
So what is Leibovitz saying here? Let's see if we can figure it out. Well, he makes a very general statement about what God wants of man. Mm -hmm. uh, such as in, in Micah, you know, do justice, love mercy, mm -hmm. come humbly before your God. Mm -hmm. That doesn't tell us much about the, the details of an anything about the details of, a so of an economic social order. Right. That is, I think, the exact point that he's making. Um, he uses this quote from Job, right, where Job cries out on behalf of his slave, right? Like, it would be a wrong thing to do to despise the cause of your slave. Of course, that doesn't tell you that there shouldn't be slavery, right? It just says that you should respect and treat your slave with dignity or something like that. So... Leibovitz is saying this um, general ethical imperative that you can derive from the prophets, that you should do justice and love mercy, doesn't prescribe a particular social order. It just gives you this kind of direction to go in, do good, but it doesn't tell you what the good is. So that would seem to be a problem if we want the Torah and if we want God to tell us what to do in this matter. Right? It would seem to be a problem that we don't have more specific guidance. Um, so Leibovitz wants to address that next. And uh, if anybody would not mind taking on this, this second paragraph. However, we are not concerned with the question of society as viewed from the perspective of an abstract religiosity, but rather with the question of its place in the Torah, in a religion encapsulated in a well-defined system of precepts and specific requirements of action. On the face of it, it would seem that the answer to our question is self-evident. After all, the Torah orders and determines a social-political system, beginning with explicit mitzvot in the written Torah and concluding with the entire system of laws collection in the books, possession, litigation, and judges in Maimonides' code, and in part of Hoshan Mishra of the Shulchan This answer, usually heard in orthodox circles, merely evades the issue. On the contrary, the Torah, for all its explicit mitzvot, leaves us stranded with the problem of taking a definite political stand on concrete issues. We still do not know whether the Torah for all its detailed and ramified social and political provisions, deals with society and the state as they ought to be, or as they really are. Is it the intention of the Torah to create a specific socio-political system defined by its mitzvot, or were the laws given to be applied within an existing system? Today, the Jew who considers the Torah a life program, or pretends to do so, cannot evade the issue of Torah and society by claiming that the regime is forced upon him from outside. He must decide whether his religious stance includes an explicit and mandatory program for the socio-political order, or whether his religion is only a personal matter and private affair in conformity with the principle governing 
the legal system of contemporary secular liberal regimes. If the Torah does prescribe a socio-political order, what is it? Thank you very much. So what, what is the um, kind of counterfactual he presents at the beginning of that paragraph, and why um, does he find it unsatisfying? There's a certain claim that he addresses that, at least in his, in his context, uh, one would hear often. Um, whether you hear it often probably depends on what circles you travel. Anyone? Well, the mitzvot are written down. Mm -hmm. uh, but then he goes on to say, that doesn't necessarily still define a socio-political order. Right. He says that there are, there are a lot of people out there who would point not just to the mitzvot in the Torah, but to the codes, to Maimonides, to the Shulchan Aruch, and say, what do you mean we don't, have a, we don't know what to do? We have these books and books and books and books and books on what to do. It tells us everything. It covers all of life. Of course we know what to do. Um, and in a section of this essay that I did not quote to you here, he addresses specifically a group of people. This is 1947, and he's in the land of Israel. So he is addressing a, a group of people who go to the English uh, King Crane Commission, I, I think. No, the Anglo-American Commission. Um, and they tell them that what they want is a Torah state. And he mocks these people because he says they don't know what a Torah state is. They, there hasn't, they don't know what one would look like because there's no halakha about war because Jews haven't done any war for 2,000 years. There's no halakha about what exact government to have and there's no halakha about what economic system to have. Everything that they're talking about is pertaining to specific situations that come up in the society that Jews have lived in, right? Most of the halakha after the Talmud comes in the form of questions and answers. So there's a rabbi in 13th century Morocco or in 18th century Poland who gets asked a question and they give an answer. Um, but by definition, such a genre can only pertain to the actual societies in which people have lived and not to a hypothetical one that you might create. Right? So this Torah state that they were referring to that has not yet existed um, lacks specifics and definition. So Leibovitch is saying that question still has to be settled. Um, and there's a reason I think that this comes up in the context of Zionism. It's because only there do you get this notion that, oh, the Jews are going to create a society. And therefore, you can then ask the next question, what should it look like? Right? Everywhere else, he says, there's this excuse. Um, the regime is forced upon me from outside. So, Dina de Malchuta Dina, right? The law of the kingdom is the law. It's not for me to say what the law of the kingdom should be. Um, and therefore, it's not for me um, means that, in a sense, for 2,000 years, uh, Judaism has not said anything about this fundamental question of the social order. What do you think about that? I mean, is this just going overboard, or is, you know, what is, is he pointing to something real here? What's he putting his finger on, if anything? I think he asked a valid question. But I, can I ask a question? When we decided as Jews to appoint a king, mm -hmm. is there some learning that we, can, that we can glean from that? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a really interesting um, history of exegesis about that section of Samuel. 
Um, also connected to the part of Deuteronomy where it's very interesting. It says um, something like, I'm you know, not one of those people who has photographic memory for uh, Sukim, but um, it says something like, when you enter into the land and you appoint a king for yourselves. And the rabbis have a question about this. Does it mean when you enter into the land, you are commanded to appoint a king for yourselves? Or is it just a prediction? When you enter the land, you're going to appoint a king for yourselves. And when you do, you'd better make sure that he doesn't accumulate uh, too much gold or too many concubines or anything like that, and that he follows the law and so on. Because in Samuel, it seems clear that the people don't have a king until they go to Samuel and ask for one. So it would be weird if Deuteronomy had commanded that it was necessary to have a king, because how come they spent the whole book of Joshua and Judges and the first seven chapters of Samuel not knowing that they were supposed to have a king, right? Um, then there's the question of um, what Samuel says in chapter 12. These are the things the king is going to do. He's going to take your sons and put them to work in his kitchens as bakers. He's going to take your daughters and make them perfumers. He's going to take your other sons and make them ride in front of his chariots. He's going to blah, blah. And then there's this whole long list. And it ends with, there will come a day when you cry out to the Lord on account of this king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you on that day. So traditionally, that list is read as a list of terrible things that the king is going to do that are oppressive and bad. However, there is also a tradition in both Jewish and Christian exegesis, interestingly, of reading it very straightforwardly as a list of royal prerogatives. These are things that we all know kings do. These are things that kings have the right to do whenever they exist. You will probably eventually come to not like that, but it doesn't mean that the king doesn't have the right to do them. If there's a king, he has the right to do these things. Um, so you will find these arguments made in Christian political literature about the rights of kings, um, but you will also find it in some of the medieval Jewish literature. Only in that first amount, though, in that first debate about Deuteronomy, do you actually see the debate over the question, should there be a king or not? Very fundamental and unsettled. Um, the messianic question also implies that uh, there should be a king, but in many of the treatments of the messianic, the king, the return of the king, is in some way also linked to the end of the world. So in ordinary historical time, there's no king. When there's a king, it's the Messiah and the world is over. Um, there are exceptions to that, of course, right? Like Maimonides argues that the king Messiah is an ordinary king who is effective at returning the Jews to the land and uh, defeating their enemies and establishing peace and creating um, a rule of Torah. And then they will die like a regular human, but the regime that they established will be so strong and effective that it will last for a thousand years or something like that. So Maimonides has this very, very material interpretation there, but uh, many of the interpretations of the Messianic king are purely otherworldly, purely, that's the end of the world pretty much. Yeah. Other thoughts about this uh, Leibovitz text? So I was just using it to set the stage, raising this big question, right? Then I thought we would go through a certain amount of uh, historical um, versions of answers. Um, and I thought the first one that we might look at is Manasseh ben Israel. 
Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with him, he was a Dutch rabbi in the 17th century. Um, and he undertook a trip to England during the period of the Commonwealth. Um, for those of you who remember your English history, the English Civil War was in the 1640s. And in 1649, they chopped off the head of Charles I. Um, and Oliver Cromwell took power and attempted to establish a Puritan Commonwealth. And Manasseh ben Israel took this opportunity to attempt to uh, tell Cromwell that he should let the Jews back into England. They had been expelled since 1290. No Jews in England, hypothetically, since 1290. And now here we are in the 17th century, in the 1600s, and he wants Cromwell to let the Jews back in. So let's look at the argument that he makes in his letter to His Highness, the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Anyone want to take this on? It is the thing confirmed that merchandising is, as it were, the proper profession of the nation of the Jews. I attribute this in the first place to the particular providence and mercy of God towards his people. For having banished them from their own country, yet not from his protection, he hath given them, as it were, a natural instinct by which they might not only gain what is necessary for their need, but that they should also thrive in riches and possessions. Seeing it is no wisdom for them to endeavor the gaining of lands and other immovable goods, and so to imprison their possessions here, where their persons are subject to so many casualties, banishments, and peregrinations. Mm -hmm. they, are for they are forced to use merchandising until the same when they shall return to their own country, that then, as God hath promised by the prophet Zachary, there shall be found no more any merchant amongst them in the house of the Lord. What's, what's he talking about? What did he just say? We're really good at doing stuff with what we've been able to do. Uh-huh. We won't be a threat to you. Which is specifically what? Merchandising. Right. So, like... If an anti-Semite said it, right, <laughs> you would say, hey, but here's an important 17th century Dutch rabbi, and um, he says, it is a thing confirmed that merchandising is the proper profession of the nation of the Jews. Okay, but why? Why is it the proper profession of the nation of the Jews? They haven't been able to do anything else. Hmm? They haven't been able to do other things. Why not? Based on the rules and, that have been imposed upon them. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, they are not allowed, uh, basically, by social conditions in Europe to get land, to become wealthy by the attainment and, uh, you know, uh, cultivation of land. So um, they're also not going to be peasants, right? They're not going to be poor by the cultivation of land. Um, instead, they have to um, move around. And I think he's also referring here back to that expulsion from England, right? I mean, that's the... Uh, one of the earlier instances of the series of expulsions that characterized Jewish life from the 13th through the 15th century in Europe, um, living in one country and then uh, getting kicked out, being welcomed into another country, living there for a while, getting kicked out. Those are the peregrinations. Um, but then what does he say? Um, okay, so the, it's practical, right? Um, it's also, uh, according to him, perhaps a little more disturbingly natural. Right? God has provided providentially that the Jews should have an instinct for commerce uh, so that they can engage in this survival, so that they can adapt to these circumstances. Right? Maybe that's a little creepy, but um, he defines it in this uh, 
providential way. What does he get to at the end here? What's that last point that he makes? When we get back to Israel, then we, there won't be any mercy there. Isn't that weird? Isn't that a weird thing to say? What could he be talking about? Yeah. You know, back then it was important for land holding, too. So we tend to forget about that today. But, you know, if you weren't, if you weren't land house, if you didn't own land, you weren't part of the gentry and everything. Mm-hmm. I, I guess he's saying that once, once, once everyone is able to go back to their own country, then they will own land and they mm-hmm. have to be merchants. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, and there's also a sense um, related to that, right, that the gentry were not themselves to be merchants. That merchandising was something that was below the level of the gentry. So... Um, this is a, also a messianic vision, right? We were just talking about that um, with respect to the king here. But um, he connects the return to prophecy. And in this prophecy, uh, I, think, I think you're right. I think that the, the Jews are all gentry, and that's why there shall be no more any merchant among them. Um, if you went to look this up, by the way, uh, it is the last verse of Zechariah, who is called Zachary here because it's in English, um, and in the Hebrew, the word that is translated as merchant is Kenani or Canaanite. <laughs> and if you look at some of the Christian Bible translations, um, the word appears as Canaanite. So the last verse would say, there shall be found no more any Canaanite in the house of the Lord, which is a very strange thing to be a prophecy, right? Because you would think, wait, didn't they get rid of the Canaanites like long before? Um, and should you become puzzled about that, uh, I am told by a friend of mine who is a biblical scholar that the term Canaani actually refers to the Phoenicians who were the people who lived on the coast of Syria and Palestine and who were seafaring people who sailed around those little Greek islands um, and also on the coast of Palestine and who were known as merchants. So Kanani is a way of referring to actually the Phoenicians, um, even though that's not what Manasseh ben Israel means here. He's thinking about Jewish merchants, right? Um, but that's just a kind of an interesting point. And it raises again this connection between the notion that in the exile, there is some sort of um, obligatory or imposed economic circumstance that Jews just have to adapt to just like there's an imposed political circumstance. But in the imaginary future, when Jews return to their own country, they will presumably um, not, no longer, at the minimum, no longer be subject to that imposition. Uh, Manasseh in Israel is not envisioning some sort of um, Jewish responsibility for the creation of a social order here, right? He's kind of imagining that God is just going to wave a magic wand and create the ideal situation, which is that everyone is a landholder and super comfortable and things are great. Um, there's not much more detail in that, but there's a clear contrast between the economy of the exile and the economy of the return from exile. Any thoughts about that? It's kind of weird, right? It's kind of weird. The, the idea that in the exile, Jews have to, have to be merchants. I mean, you know. That's weird enough on its own. Um, if we don't want to say more than that, we can move to the next 
uh, source, but I want to make sure that um, anybody who might have something to say about the Manasseh Ben Israel text has said their piece. But didn't it continue when Jews, when we came to the United States? That's, that's the only way the Jews could live, could support themselves. So it seems like it's just throughout history that this has been a, a way of life. <clears throat> That's, um, but it is true that in that uh, time period 100 years ago, uh, Jews um, became factory workers or uh, sometimes became farmers um, as well as merchants. Right? There's a little bit more occupational diversity, um, but there were a lot of peddlers as well. Right? A big part of the story of Jews in the United States involves uh, traveling from town to town with a pack on your back, especially the early immigrants. Um, that is mostly, I think, uh, second generation, um, so 19, uh, late 19 teens and 20s, um, in the United States, anyway. Um, but if you go back uh, to the late 19th century and the turn of the century, um, there's really a Jewish proletariat. I mean, it's um, like the Triangle Shirtwaist Buyer, famous example, you know, all of those uh, shop workers were Jewish women um, who were essentially often working for uh, Jewish factory owners. Um, and when they did all their strikes and their labor actions and so on, it was against Jewish factory owners and as Jewish organizers. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, by that point, it was no longer, I don't think anyone in that circumstance would have identified Jews with purely uh, with merchandising. Yeah. Is he trying to reassure um, <coughs> England, Scotland, and Ireland that you don't need to be threatened by us? We're just going to do this merchandising job. For oh, us? yes, that is an excellent question, right? So this is supposed to be a case for letting the Jews back in, right? Um, and I think there was a perception, which has lasted down to the present day, that the Puritans were favorable to this type of argument. Um, the Puritans were known for, uh, I guess today they would say disrupting, um, the economic arrangements favored by other types of Christians. Um, so for example, the Anglican Church, which was really modeled on the Catholic Church, um, had what the Puritans considered to be very conservative economic policies uh, with respect to land tenure, for example. Puritans thought you should take the land and break it up and allow it to be sold on the market. Um, Max Weber later describes this as the beginning of the Protestant ethic that informed the spirit of capitalism. Um, so it's possible that Manasseh ben Israel either knew more than we might think that a Dutch rabbi would know about English Protestant economic practices, or that he was learning something or observing something from the Calvinists who were in Holland, who were theologically related to the Puritans in England. But yeah, he thought that they would think that this was a good argument. Let the Jews in because they will fulfill a useful economic function that will help England by moving goods from place to place. Yeah. Okay, should we go to the next source? Mm -hmm. Okay. Moses Hess, Roman Jerusalem, 1862. We've jumped forward two centuries, and now this is in German, but it's translated. Uh, anyone want to take this paragraph? 
Thank you. <laughs> no nation was, was ever so far from the egoistic principle as was the Jewish people. With the Jews, solidarity and social responsibility were always the fundamental principles of life and conduct. The acquisition of a common ancestral soil, the organization of the work on a legal basis, the founding of Jewish societies in agriculture, industry, and commerce on the Mosaic, i.e. socialist principles, these are the foundations on which Oriental Jewry will rise again and in its rise will rekindle the glimmering fire of the old Jewish patriotism and light the way to a new life for the Jewry of the entire world. Thank you. Okay, what's going on in this one? I think there's a, there's a very significant IE in this paragraph, yeah. right? Mosaic IE socialist. He treats that as obvious, right? Um, this is... The 19th century, Hess is, uh, actually knows Marx. Um, they have a, a debate. Um, but this is still 20 years before the formal, really, origins of the Zionist movement. And he's forecasting that there will emerge um, a risen Oriental Jewry um, in its own land, um, organizing its work on socialist principles, um, which is... Again, 20 years before Zionism. But uh, the reason I included it is um, he does not say anything here about merchandising as the proper profession of the nation of the Jews, right? Uh, so you have, on the one hand, someone trying to make the case that um, not only is that true, but it's good. It's good because it's helpful to society. And on the other hand, you have someone who says, um, to the contrary, um, Socialist principles are the foundations of uh, what he calls Jewish patriotism. Um, so these are the kinds of parameters um, that exist in the history of commentary on this topic. Um, and what you find that comes later uh, will often echo one of these two claims in one way or another. Um, and I also want to point out, again, so far, all three of the texts that we've looked at, and there's going to be still one more, um, have dealt with the idea of the Jews in their own country, right? Leibovitz is addressing specifically the situation of the Zionists in Israel in 47. Uh, ben Israel is only thinking about the messianic return, but he mentions that when it happens, the economic situation of the Jews will change. And Hess is, is imagining that the Jewish return to their ancestral soil will coincide with this organization of their work on socialist principles and light the way to a new life for world Jewry. So in all three cases, there is a very important role given to the idea or, or possibility of self-determining the Jewish economy in some way. Maybe not in the Ben Israel case, if you think God just gives everybody some land or something, but there's still that contrast between the exile and the landedness, right? Um, so regardless of um, the specific recommendation, that contrast is there. And so I wanted to do one more source that um, also takes that into account before we kind of switch the framework, because uh, I'll, I'll sort of point ahead a little bit here, right? But um, American Jews 
probably Israeli Jews too, right? Um, it turns out there's something called the global economy. And so it's actually not possible. Uh, maybe someone wants to argue with me in here. But I think it's actually not possible, maybe, for one country to simply decide that it's going to have an economy that looks like one thing without the global market having something to say about it. Um, we could debate that, maybe. But in any case, American Jews live in a multicultural, pluralistic society, right? And we are not in the position of being about to say, well, we have decided that we have discovered that Judaism says what kind of economy we should have. And now we will tell you, the other 98% of Americans, what that is, right? That is not something that is uh, possible or desirable to happen, right? So we have to um, put alongside the idea of let's imagine that God really wants a specific type of economy and that the Jews have a responsibility to create it in their own society. Alongside that, we have to put the idea of, well, um, what about what about the diaspora? What about a situation in which Jews um, may not be living in uh, a completely imposed regime like the ghettos in 16th century Italy, but have something to say in the government because it's a democratic society, have some way of participating, but are not dictating, right? What, what do you do then? So that's the little preview of where we're going to go. But I want to do the last one that's about the land first. Would anyone like to read this Buber text? This is from his letter to Gandhi. Uh, in 1939. I can read it if no one else wants to. Okay, thank you. Decisive for us is not the promise of the land. Martin Buber, Letter to Gandhi, 1939. Decisive for us is not the promise of the land, but the command, the fulfillment of which is bound up with the land with the existence of a free Jewish community in this country. For the Bible tells us, and our inmost knowledge testifies to it, that once, more than 3,000 years ago, our entry into this land was in the consciousness of a mission from above to set up a just way of life through the generations of our people such a way of life as can be realized not by individuals in the sphere of their private existence, but only by a nation in the establishment of its society. Communal ownership of the land, regularly recurrent leveling of social distinctions, guarantee of the independence of each individual, mutual help, a common Sabbath embracing serf and beast as beings with equal claim, a sabbatical year whereby, letting the soil rest, everybody is admitted to the free enjoyment of its fruits. No other nation has ever been faced at the beginning of its career with such a mission. Here is something which allows of no forgetting and from which there is no release. At that time, we did not carry out what was imposed upon us. We went into exile with our task unperformed. But the command remained with us 
and it has become more urgent than ever. We need our own soil in order to fulfill it. We need the freedom of ordering our own life. <coughs> no attempt can be made on foreign soil and under foreign statute. It may not be that the soil and the freedom for fulfillment be denied us. We are not covetous, Mahatma. Our one desire is that at last we may obey. What's going on here? Well, actually, Buber's reminding us that uh, that the mitzvot actually do tend to <laughs> lay out a, mm-hmm. some kind of economic uh, roadmap. He seems to think they do, right? Yes. He's got a number of specific ones. Yes. Um, and, and they didn't all didn't talk about the 49th year. Mm-mm. Didn't even get to the jubilee. Didn't yeah. Didn't even get there. Um, Buber also considered Hess the uh, spiritual founder of. Uh, the kind of Zionism that he subscribed to. So he's, I think, trying to be very much in the, in the tradition of Hess here. Um, but yeah, he thinks, he, thinks those, he thinks those rules are there. Um, and so he thinks that there's an obligation to fulfill them and uh, you know, that it's not, um, it's not mysterious, it's not secret. We know what it is. I don't know very much about this. Did Gandhi, it sounds like he's trying to dialogue with Gandhi, saying we are not covetous. Mm-hmm. Um, was Gandhi of the opinion that it was a, a bad thing to want your own country? Like, is that too materialistic in Gandhi's view? So Gandhi is very, very aware of the role of the British in Palestine, and in 1939, the Arabs of Palestine have been in revolt for three years against the British um, for what they see as support or sponsorship of Zionism. Um, Starting in the 30s, the immigration rate of Jews into Palestine went up way beyond what it had been in the 20s and the 19-teens for obvious reasons. Um, And the rate of immigration for example, in 1935 was such that if it continued um, at that rate every year, the Jews would become a majority in the country by 10 years later. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So the Arab revolt was essentially an effort to say, look, to the British, while you're in charge here, you're allowing all of these Zionists to come in and take our country away from us. And that revolt had been going on for three years by 1939, and it concluded with the issuance of the white paper by the British government that restricted Zionist immigration into Palestine, something that came at from the, what from the Jewish perspective was the absolute worst moment, right? Because... During that three-year revolt from 36 to 39, what happened? Uh, someone invaded Poland and you know, started this gigantic war that was going to have massively uh, horrific impact on the Jews of Europe. 
right? And at that exact moment, Britain says, well, you can't come to Palestine anymore, right? And the U.S. has already shut off the immigration valve. The U.S. had said since 1924 that uh, they were shutting off Eastern European immigration to uh, the United States. So Gandhi was, when he commented on this, he was only thinking about um, the idea that the British were meddling around in Palestine and they were seemed to him to be taking the side of the Zionists against the Arabs. And Buber writes to him to say that there are other factors that you should consider. Does that answer the question? Okay. So the rest of um, what I have here, the next few selections, are all from much more recent years. So Mayer Tamari, 1987, Jill Jacobs, 2009, Joseph Lipschitz, 2012, and then we'll ignore those last two for a second. And I'm not sure we'll have time to get to all of them, but I want to look at them, uh, at least the first two, the Tamari and the Jacobs, um, as an example of something very different, right? Um, something that is not necessarily about the idea that, oh, the Jews are not going to design the social order from the ground up according to what they know is the Jewish way to do that, um, but rather along the lines of what Tamari calls a framework for economic activity. So I wonder if anybody would be willing to take on that next source. There exists an ethical and moral framework for economic activity which is intrinsic to Judaism. This framework must not be confused with economic theory, nor must it be seen as promoting a capitalist or socialist economy. Rather, it is argued that it creates a special economy of its own. We may summarize the limitations placed by Judaism on economic activity as follows. Number one, there is a limitation on the time permissibly allotted to economic activity on account of the obligations to study Torah. Number two, the production or sale of goods or services that are harmful to their consumers, either physically or morally, is forbidden. Number three, one is responsible for damages caused by one's body or property. Number four, theft or economic dishonesty in any form or guise is forbidden. Five, one is required to limit one's appetite for material goods. One's disposable income is also automatically reduced by the demands of tzedakah and interest-free loans and by taxation to finance welfare, education, and the physical well-being of the community. All right, what's going on here? 1987 now. Can you just explain uh, number one in more detail? And I'm asking for... There's a limitation on the time. Mm -hmm. So I think that has to do with what he um, means by a special economy of its own. So I think that he perceives both capitalist and socialist economic theories as treating the economy as though it's everything um, and treating material welfare as the most important thing, even though they make different arguments about what is the best way to attain material welfare. 
So he starts out by saying, Judaism says Torah study is the most important thing. Therefore, um, and he mentions this, I think, somewhere else in the book, one reason that you find Jews in uh, certain types of professions is that those are professions where you can regulate your hours and uh, therefore you have time to study the Torah. Um, you should never be devoting all your time to economic gain um, because you have other more important obligations. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I think that one of the reasons, I mean, he mentions uh, there's a famous case where um, it's the very, very early years of the Zionist movement and some of the early kibbutz uh, farmers go to some rabbi and they ask a question about you know, milking their cows on the Sabbath or something. And the rabbi has no idea what to say because there's nothing in the Shulchan Aruch about this. And he says, his answer to them is, why do you have to be farmers? Can't you be shopkeepers like your pious fathers? Right? And so I think this is a, there's a little bit of that here in Tamari. Um, remember the Torah study is more important than material gain. But he thinks that applies equally to capitalist and socialist theorists um, who are interested in material gain in different ways. Other thoughts? So is he saying these ethical and moral principles and stuff mm -hmm. like that sort of are overlaid on capitalism and, and uh, socialism? Is that what he's trying to say? I here? think so, yeah. He's really not, I mean, it's a little contradictory because he says it creates a special economy of its own, but he's not advocating some sort of um, redesign of the economy. I mean, he's Israeli. He teaches in the business and econ department at Bar Ilan University. And um, he states that his motivation for writing this book is that he felt that he was teaching the same econ class that you could learn at any other university in the world. And that started to bother him. And he wanted to teach something that had Jewish content. Um, so he comes up with this. But at the same time, I don't think this involves redesigning the economy, right? It's uh, overlaid, it's as you said. Is it an economics textbook? Is that what's that? Um, so this book is, with all your possessions, it's a, really a sort of um, an ethics book. Um, but, uh, and he says he did teach a class on this, but he taught it as a separate class because he didn't want his students to um, feel that they were somehow losing out on their actual economics education by having to take that class. Very telling, I think. So if you had an interest-free loan, wouldn't, wouldn't it increase your di disposable income to give more to charity for this? Yes. Um, the Jewish obligation to give interest-free loans to people who need them um, is rooted in the, um, not necessarily just the fact that they need them, but in that by getting them, they will not need more charity. So before someone needs pure charity, you can give them an interest-free loan, um, which is like a form of charity, um, and it will prevent them from becoming destitute so that they need another kind of charity. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. This seems like a departure from the first text because this system is portable and can be imposed on different economic systems, mm -hmm. whereas it doesn't require like being built from the ground up. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I think that's what part of what he's going for, um, because I think his his um, the context he's reacting to is not 
here I am, I'm in a situation where people are about to design an economy. But he's been in a state that's been around for 40 years, and it has an economy that's integrated into the global economy. And what he's actually dealing with is the fact that his students don't think that Judaism has anything to do with economics at all. They're not making any connection between the Torah and what they're learning in business school. <laughs> so he wants them to think that there's a connection, right? But what kind of connection would be plausible? If he tells them you have to redesign the economy from the ground up, they might be like, well, this is irrelevant to my life, right? Um, yeah, please. Plus, there's Jews in every country in the world. I mean, this is 1987, but of course this was the case thousands of years ago, too. Mm -hmm. um, wh wherever we are, we might be in a capitalistic economy, we may be in a socialist economy, we may be in a communist, in a communistic mm -hmm. economy. I don't mean to be mixing economic and political situations here, but, but we mm -hmm. can be in all kinds of different economic situations, and so he's got, he's got something to say that could be applicable to That's right. all and of I, them, which is, I think, important. I think he's designed them that way because he really thinks that these are um, trans-historical. You get them out of the Jewish sources and they apply to the medieval Jews and the ancient Jews and the modern Jews and here and there and everywhere. Yeah, that's what he's trying to do. Um, and I think maybe the next source is another version of that, but in a different context. So Jill Jacobs, you might have heard of her. She lives in the U.S. now. Um, and I think this, uh, in this book, There Shall Be No Needy, attempts to do something very, very similar to what Tamari is doing. But as you'll see, uh, her list looks a little different. So would anyone want to take that uh, paragraph? Again, I'm happy to read it if you don't want to. If, as some have argued, the Torah were a fully socialist document, we might expect a, a biblical demand to divide the land equally among all residents. On the other hand, as others have suggested, the Torah advocated an unrestricted free market economy. The periodic redistribution of land would be nonsensical. Rather, the Torah, as well as later Jewish law, favors a check market system that permits the ethical acquisition of wealth with measures amid and amid at ensuring that the market does not allow the poorest members of society to end up with close to nothing. Deuteronomy 15 lays out both the vision of economic justice and the beginning of a program for achieving that, this vision. In the course of offering a vision of a perfected world and mandating human participation in achieving this vision, this passage also lays out a series of principles that will underlie virtually all Jewish economic law. One, the world and everything in it belongs to God. Human beings come upon wealth only by chance and do not necessarily deserve the wealth in their possession. Two, the fates of the wealthy and the poor are inextricably linked. Three, corrective measures are necessary to prevent some people from becoming exceedingly rich at the expense of others. Four, even the poorest members of society possess inherent dignity. Each member of the community is responsible for preserving the dignity of others. Five, the responsibility for poverty relief is an obligation, not a choice. Six, strategies for poverty relief must balance short-term and long-term needs. Seven, the eradication of poverty is an essential part of bringing about a perfected world, and each person has an obligation to work towards the creation of this world. Thank you. So how does this uh, compare to the last one that we looked at? 
I feel like maybe she had that other book in her hand when she wrote this book. I don't know about you. It just kind of feels that way to me. It sounds more active. More active. It's not like, uh, it's a reaction, but it also has um, an imperative to it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she brings the perfected world back in, right? And the obligation to uh, uh, work toward that. I don't understand, like, isn't the idea to come alone? I thought it was this. I thought this was it. No? What do you mean? Well, if we're healing the world, all these things make seem to me what is needed to heal the world. Well, Why wouldn't it be? Like new ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love them. I love these ideas. It just seems like she's saying obvious stuff to you, is that it? Yeah. In modern language. In modern language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know what, what I was going to say. Oh. Okay. If you remember. No, it was just basically, just to go off what she said, like, that that's more active, like she said, so that is where the idea of tikkun olam comes from. Mm-hmm. So, like, how do we do it? Well, it's right here to help. Because if we didn't know how at all, mm-hmm. then we wouldn't be able to do what God intended us to do. Interesting. Hmm. So, I guess maybe um, if you... So next time someone comes up and they're like, oh my goodness, I need help, I'm going to say, well, let's go look for an interest-free loan. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I mean, interest-free loans are hard to come by um, on the loan market, right? But I guess part of what there Tamari... Are banks that do it. Yeah, there are? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. I mean, wait, were you serious? I couldn't, maybe I thought you were being sarcastic and you were being serious. No, I'm being serious. Okay, awesome, interesting. So... Um, if I find out the bank, mm-hmm. um, I'll let you know, but my ex-boyfriend knows that bank, so... We'll... If I ever find out in my life, then I'll let you know. I don't know very many banks that are doing a lot of interest-free loans, so I would be interested to learn about that, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, I think that the vision that Jacobs is talking about here is pretty common in American Judaism today. Um, and so I think that maybe explains the sense of uh, familiarity. Um, but I do think that if we focus on the, some of the specific contrasts between this and the Tamari list, um, notice that his focus, that activity, I think, is also in the language. He uses these passive uh, participles. Um, the production or sale, um, damages caused, uh, economic dishonesty in any form, um, one is required, Right? Whereas uh, she says, um, each member of the community is responsible. Um, poverty relief is an obligation. She doesn't address this specific issue of uh, goods or services that are harmful, um, which he makes his number two. She doesn't address Torah study as related to the economy, his number one. Um, it's almost, I think, that his categories map much more clearly onto the Talmudic and uh, code categories. Um, if you were to look at the Bavli and the Shulchan Aruch, 
lo and behold, there's an entire section called damages. And if he says the damages is in his list, he's going to find a lot to tell you about damages. But if he's looking mainly there, he might not find something about strategies for poverty relief in the same way that he would find something about damages. And I think that maybe Jacobs is focusing more on um, other areas of Jewish literature. Could be. I don't know. I think this is egocentric. Um, you're probably wrong. But it's like, are, are these ideas intrinsically Jewish? Is which one? The Jacob thing. Oh. Um, you mean, could someone who was Christian or Muslim potentially... Oh, I'm sure they could. They could. Maybe. Maybe that would be a strength, as she sees it. Right? Because Tamari says, this isn't capitalism or socialism, it's a special economy of its own. She also says it's not fully capitalism or socialism, but then the thing that she says that it is, um, is basically just regulated capitalism. Right? A checked market system. So she doesn't say it creates a special economy that's totally different than anything else we know. Um, she might be aiming, actually, for the idea of people from other backgrounds arriving at some consensus on this. That could be a positive. This is obviously a blend. Hmm? Unchecked, any, any system is going to go haywire. Mm -hmm. So this is the blend, the fairness doctrine. Mm -hmm. You could take a, a socialist system and like, not quite like China, but give them a little capitalism. You can give a capitalist system a little socialism, and you get a fairness doctrine. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're, this is this is to me like a moral imperative of fairness. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, it, it seems like justice. Um, you you couldn't. You, I mean, it's like the extremes of anything right. destroys it. So right. the extremes of capitalism, um, which we get examples of every day, destroy the fabric of our country. The extremes of, of socialism, um, well, they, they get, they're, they're human people in charge of them, so they get destroyed as well. Mm -hmm. Anything that humans touch without regulation can be destroyed. This is just saying, hey, let's be fair. Let's have a set of rules that are a moral code to bring us back into check when the extremes of any system just go haywire. Do you think her number one speaks to that by putting God at the center, maybe, to try and right, take we, the human that, factor that out a little bit? we don't really own land. Mm -hmm. Like, land is not something you can own. We don't own other people. Mm -hmm. We don't own, I mean, we, we, we have the privilege of tending to animals. Mm -hmm. We have responsibilities. We mm -hmm. just, like, we don't want animals to be caged up in such a small area that they can't turn. I mean, it, 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 you know, that there's, there's almost a fairness to how we tend to things. Which right. We are just, they're on loan. Like, our children are on loan until they become adults, and they're their own. Right. We don't own them. We don't own anything. Mm. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean... One of the passages that Buber cited in his whole litany, maybe it was Leviticus 25, 23, I don't remember, but when he, he mentioned communal ownership of the land.
But there's a section in, in Leviticus where God literally says, the land is mine. You are sojourners with me. And... Well, I would I mean, that, mm -hmm. I, that's what I'm saying. No one a person can mm -hmm. own land. I mean, we do legally own it. But we are really... I mean, nature can take it away. Um, so the next one... Is, I'll, I'll read the next one. Um, this is a more recent book by Joseph Lifshitz, Judaism, Law, and the Free Market and Analysis. I think he's kind of responding to Jacobs and to what he perceives to be a broad American Jewish acceptance of some sort of identification of Judaism with, you could say, social democracy, uh, if not socialism. Um, and he says this, Jewish law calls on man to do everything in his power to avoid becoming dependent on his community for his welfare. That is why Rabbi Akiva taught his son, it is both better to profane your Sabbath than to become dependent on others. From his perspective, man is never excused from taking responsibility for himself and is never allowed to make himself a burden on others. Under no circumstances are the poor to be absolved of this responsibility to work through the redistribution of wealth. Even in a society of significant income differences between the wealthy and the poor, the poor have no legal claim against the wealthy. Even in a case of voluntary giving, Jewish law cautions against excessive generosity and forbids a person from donating more than one-fifth of his assets so as not to become poor himself. The prohibition against giving too much to the poor is an expression of the Jewish view that there never was, nor will there ever be, an ideal state of economic equality among all men. The sages emphasize that each man is created differently from his fellow, and that this, the difference, is an expression of every individual's uniqueness, of every man having been created in the image of God. Indeed, according to the Jewish approach to property, economic equality is not just impossible, it is also undesirable. Such a condition negates the uniqueness of the individual and therefore negates the image of God within him. Thus the Bible says, For the poor shall never cease out of the land. What do you think about that? Can you speak up a little? It's sickening. Oh, it's sickening. Thank you. Um, you would you mind uh, saying a little more about what about it sickens you? Okay, I, I can understand it. Well, I, I think we just, I don't know, I'm not going to go back to the distribution. Um, it never was so people are created differently and some people are just going to have a sucky life um, <laughs> economic <laughs> equality I believe it is not just impossible it is also undesirable that I find really hard and then such a condition negates the uniqueness of an individual and Mm -hmm. There's more. There's more things than than your economic well-being that would make you different. Mm -hmm. yes. So if you, so if everyone was was given, um, let's say, twenty-five million dollars to start uh -huh. their career, um, everyone is. It, it, it should be. It could uniquely abuse or use that in the way they see fit. Mm -hmm. um, 
but that but there there would be some equality to that. Some people would gamble it away. Mm-hmm. Some people would drink it away. Some people would give it away. Some people would, you know, have a self-sustaining business, and some people would take advantage of. I mean, you know, I, I this is basically saying, you know, basically, accept the status quo and don't try to make it better. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. That's what he's saying. <laughs> so it, it's not it's not about justice. And it's not about Tukuna Lam. It's about don't worry, it's good enough. Give your five, give your one fifth, no more. Mm. You might have twenty twenty billion dollars of individual wealth, but just just make sure you only give two billion away. I think you do have to at least admire the ingenuity of using the argument of the image of God in each person to, um, you know, reject <laughs> economic redistribution. Right? It's clever, at least, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> it, is, it, it doesn't. It, 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 it basically is sitting on, on a foundation of inequality. Um, any other thoughts on this on this passage? I do want to draw your attention to the fact that the text that he cites at the end, "For the poor shall never cease out of the land," is from Deuteronomy 15, the same chapter that Jill Jacobs mentioned in her paragraph, um, and the one that gave rise to her title, There Shall Be No Needy. Um, and so it is actually a long-standing exegetical question for the rabbis, just as with the king situation. What's up with Deuteronomy 15? How come it says, there shall be no needy in the land, and also the poor shall never cease out of the land? And so the, maybe the last text we'll look at, or I'm not sure how much time do we have. Are we done? Okay. All right. So then let's just look at, look at number eight here. Um, Sifre Zuta Deuteronomy, which is a midrash on Deuteronomy. Um, anyone want to take that? It's real quick. For there will never cease to be needy ones in your land. For there will never cease to be needy ones when Israel does not fulfill the Torah. There shall be no needy among you when Israel fulfills the Torah. That's what you call a midrashic resolution of an exegetical problem. It may not, it may not fully satisfy, right? Uh, but it is a resolution. What do you think? It's practical. There will never cease to be poor in the land, right? Taken on its own. Seems to authorize at least something like the view that Lipschitz is putting forward, right? Like it is just nature, it is the nature of the world that sometimes people will be poor. And you cannot devise any strategy or system that will change that. It is impossible. However, the same text also includes, there shall be no needy among you, which sounds like an obligation to prevent people from becoming needy. It seems like it's just irreconcilable. Well, there's also the definition of what is needy. Yes, and that's what you really need. a very good point, and the Mishnah has a lot to say about that <laughs> um, in its definition of who can get charity. And it lays out, you know, a person who has such and such an amount can get charity. A person who has such and such an amount cannot get charity. Um, and it actually tries to... And that will only 
Mm. Well, or at least related to prices or something, right? Or, but some judgment of how to how to value what is not valuable. What's not what you can't put value to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. What about um, so there will never cease to be needy ones. But what about then the certain, you know, like even the farmers would um, leave areas of their land when they harvested for the poor to glean. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's the only one I can think of. So, so in the sense of there's always needy ones, but yet you're taking care of the needy at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, right, so there shall be no needy could be read as prevent anyone from ever becoming needy, but it could also be read as when there's needy, you take care of them, right? Yeah, that would be another resolution. Um, the Sifre Zute resolution could also, I think, be read in two ways. One would be to read it in a very kind of literal God punishes and rewards way, which is like if everyone's keeping the Torah in some other respects, then God will help the land with rain and such things so that nobody will suffer and there won't be any needy, right? That would be way number one. Way number two, though, would be to read this as included in the fulfillment of the Torah, such that if Israel is fulfilling the Torah, then by definition, there will not be needy in the land because of that being included in the fulfillment. Um, the text itself doesn't tell you which of these interpretations uh, to adopt. Um, the last text I thought was very interesting is this text from Nehemiah. So it's back to the actual Tanakh. And I like it because it's a narrative. All these other texts that we've looked at so far are theoretical in some way or exegetical. Um, but narrative, I think, offers a different uh, way of getting into any topic. Um, there's emotions, things happen. Um, so I thought that it would be a good way to conclude um, so does anyone want to take the first paragraph of the Nehemiah? Um, by, the, by the way, the context, if anyone doesn't remember, Nehemiah um, is a governor of Yehud when it is a province under the Persian Empire. So this is after the Babylonian exile, and then Babylonia has been knocked out by Persia, which is now in charge. And Persia lets a bunch of the Judeans who were in exile go back home, but... It's still the empire in charge, so it gets to appoint the governors, right? And so they send Nehemiah there as a governor. And the main thing that he does is known for is rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But other stuff also happens while he's the governor. And the text is told from his first-person perspective. So that's part of what, that's what we're getting here. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish king. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. We must get grain, so that we may eat and stay alive. There were also those who said, We are having to pledge our fields, our vineyards, and our homes in order to give grain during the famine. And there are those who said, We are having to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay the king's taxes. Now our flesh is the same as that of our kindred, our children is the same as their children, and yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters to have been ravished. We are powerless in our fields and vineyards now belong to others. So, pretty bad situation. There's a famine or a drought or something. There's not enough food growing. People are starving. 
On top of that, they have to pay taxes that they can't pay. And on top of that, their own people, some of their own people who were not hit by the drought or who had already stored up enough that they were rich, are taking the opportunity to take the fields and vineyards and houses of the people who were hit by the famine as pledge uh, in exchange for giving them grain to eat. So, ugh. Right? Okay, so what happens next? Anyone want to take this last part? I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. <clears throat> After thinking it over, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are all taking interest from your own people. And I called a great assembly to deal with them and said to them, as far as we were able, we have brought back our Jewish kindred who had been sold to other mm. nations. But now you are selling your own kin, who must then be bought, who must then be bought back by us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, "The thing that you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our our enemies?" Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us stop this taking of interest. Restore to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their house, and the interest on money, grain, grain wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore everything and demand nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests... And I made them make, take an oath to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out everyone from house and from property who does not perform this promise. Thus may they be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Thank you. So here's a first-person account by a Jewish governor of an economic situation in which an action was taken. Can we learn anything from this? How did it go? Hmm? Did it really work? Did it really work? Uh, that's a great question. I mean... we would have to go and look. The problem with this is that it's the last book of the Bible. Yeah. I mean, chronologically, nothing happens after this. So we would have to go and look into Second Temple Jewish literature and figure out whether we think that there's a real bad problem with landlords uh, taking everybody's houses and vineyards as pledges to see if Nehemiah's policy stuck. But it was a pretty big, it was a pretty big pattern in the ancient world that when new governors or new kings came to power, they would forgive everyone's debts. It was like the first thing that they did, um, often because they wanted to build up loyalty, um, but also it was a, a way of trying to reset when things got too um, out of whack, partially, I think, maybe because all of these nobles, if they had everybody's houses and vineyards and debts, then they were basically like, eventually on the way to becoming kings. Um, but this seems to fit that pattern pretty well also. I think it's interesting that he doesn't, um, 
he doesn't invoke the Torah here, really. He doesn't cite any law. He says, the thing that you are doing is not good. <laughs> right? Um, he invokes God, for sure. Right? Um, but when he tells them why it's not good, it's, it's narrative, right? We bought back our kindred, and now you're selling them? Um, shouldn't you be fearing God? We're lending them money and grain without interest. It's all just examples of things that are better, right? Um, and by the sheer existence of the example of the better thing, these people are shamed, right? So maybe that's... Uh, I don't know, maybe that's something that we can learn in terms of when we're thinking about Judaism and its relevance to economic questions, right? We have these options. One option is try and figure out all of the things that the halakha says about all of these different economic practices and try to apply them. Another option is the option here, which seems to be the option I think that Leibovitz is kind of very unsatisfied with in the first source, right? Do justice, love mercy. But what Nehemiah does here is basically just do justice, love mercy, I mean, unless you want to challenge my reading. So, Professor, we can do just lay out in simple terms what um, God's economy would look like. Yes, I will now begin. I will now. And I'd like to know what God's economy would look like. Would it look something like anything that is existing now? And, and, and how do you move it toward what that might look like? I will now begin my hour-long lecture uh, that I have been saving for this point. Um, so I think, I think that there's another aspect to this which I didn't deal with, um, which is that I think it's a little bit of an anachronism or a category mistake when some of our writers talk about the system that exists in the Torah and whether it's socialist or capitalist. I don't think those terms apply to ancient agricultural economies. Um, where people mostly live off of what they grow themselves and they're not uh, putting things for sale on markets, um, nor is there some central authority that's taking what they have and distributing it, right? So really it's neither of those things. Probably the rules about loans and such are um, imagining situations in which there is some unlucky thing that happens that causes someone to not be able to eat what they grew themselves that year like there's not enough rain or there's a disaster that wipes out the crop. And so for a temporary time, someone is in need of sustenance. But it's not imagined that there would be some sort of permanent class of people who can't provide for themselves. That's just not in the imaginary. So I think that um, to refer to something that Leibovitz says elsewhere in this essay, um, you know, when you look at anything in the Torah, for example, there's a prohibition on plowing with an ox and a donkey together. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean you must never use mechanical plows because you have to use oxen or donkeys so that you can fulfill the commandment of not plowing with them together? Does it mean you have to create an agricultural economy that involves oxen and donkeys? Um, probably not, right? It probably has some kind of principle to it that you have to figure out what it is, and then you can apply that in some other situation. Um, and I suspect that that is probably also true of the various rules that are presented not in the format of 
here's what the economy should be because the concept of the economy didn't exist back then, right? Um, sort of like the word politics, also a Greek word, which has to do with the essential form of the existence of <laughs> Greek society, the polis. Um, oikos is the Greek word for household and nomos is the Greek word for law. So the concept of the economy itself is also only a few hundred years old and didn't exist back then. So if we want to think about all of that in terms of Jewish values and we care what the sources say and we want to draw something out of them, I think we have to do a lot of careful study of the sources and the commentaries and kind of laboriously bring them into the present moment through a process of translation similar to that example, right? If we don't think it means we must strive to, we have to get all the Israelite tribes and distribute the land to them so they can do the Jubilee, if we don't think it means that, right? Then we have to decide, well, what do we think it means and how can we apply something like the Jubilee today? Um, but I haven't done that yet. Well, thank you everybody for coming. Let's give um, Professor Samuel Brody Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.